This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2022, live in a classroom at Yale University. Ottoman Retreat, Russian Power, Ukrainian Populism. The thing that we're trying to do today is difficult for a couple of reasons. The first is that the 18th century is just tricky. I don't know how often you guys think about the 18th century, but the 18th century is somewhere before we get into the comfortable modern categories of mass politics, but it's also somewhere after we're in the things we think we understand like Middle Ages and Renaissance and, and Reformation. The 18th century is very, is very tricky, but it's also fascinating. Um, two historians who I admire very much, the late Tony Jutt and my colleague here, Paul Bushkovich, um, both you know, have always insisted to me that the 18th century is the, is the best century, and I'm, I'm working on that. I'm working to try to make the 18th century good, and hopefully I can make it, make it accessible. Uh, the other thing, the other reason that this is tricky is that I'm, I'm, we ha- if we're going to understand what happened to Ukrainians in the 18th century, even more than other times, we're going to have to keep geography straight. And this is why I've handed out, in addition to the, the term sheets, I've handed out the, the two maps, because the thing that we have to understand in the 18th century is how Russian power ends up dominating the zone from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, which is new. Up until now, that zone between the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea has had all kinds of powers in it, but it hasn't been the Russian Empire. In the 18th century, beginning from 1699 or beginning from 1700, we see a turn of events which leads to Russia, the Russian Empire, dominating that zone. Um, by the end of the 18th century, uh, I'll, you know, if you're not going to pay attention for the next 54 minutes, this is where it's going to go. By the end of the 18th century, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is going to be out of the picture. The Ukrainian Cossack states are going to have lost all their autonomy and basically be working for Russia. Uh, and the Crimean Hanut, which we're going to be talking about today, is going to, is going to cease to exist. So three major entities, which have been around for centuries in one form or another, are going to be dominated or dismissed by the, by the end of the 18th century. Um, if this were a class about the Russian Empire, you know, this would be about the spread of Russia. And of course, we'll be talking about that. But from our point of view, what we need to have in focus is the, the, the kind of simultaneous weakening and disappearance of these three entities. Because as these three entities disappear, um, they don't do so gracefully. They do so in conflict with one another, and that's one of the reasons, of course, why they do disappear, is, is, is the conflict with one another. The other reason, which you can just have in the back of your mind, is that it is Russia, the Russian Empire, which breaks out into the European Age of Discovery. Right? Not, the, not the Crimeans, not the Poles, not the Ukrainians, but it's Russia which breaks out into the European Age of Discovery, which becomes an empire in the fully global sense of the word, in having access to the Pacific Ocean, and having access to the Baltic, um, to the Atlantic by, by, way, by way of the Baltic. In a sense, that's the big picture, that, that Russia becomes this kind of modern empire, which is exactly how Peter and Catherine were thinking about it. But in our picture, what's happening is that these other three entities are, are diminishing, they're fighting one another, and by, the, and by the end of the 18th century, they are essentially gone. Now, this geography is a mess. Um, it's a mess, it's a mess, it's a mess, because we have to have in, we have to have in mind the zone from the, the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea the entire time. Um, and we have to have in mind inside Ukraine, and this is where things really get hard, 
we have to have in mind the Black Sea, the Azov Sea, and then when we're thinking about Ukraine, you might have noticed in your reading that there's constantly this mention of right bank and left bank. Okay, now I'm now gonna blow your mind. The only way to understand right bank and left bank is that you have to think like a river. Yeah, exactly. You have to think like, and, and if you, it, it, this, is a, this is serious, you have to think like a river. You have to know which way does the river flow. It flows from north to south. And so what is the left bank, right? The, the, the left bank is the eastern bank, and the right bank is the western bank. Um, and so it's not, you know, when you say right bank, left bank, it's not right and left on the map. It's the opposite, because right bank and left bank are the banks of the river, and it's from the point of view of the river. And if you can, you know, I don't have time to do all the Zen work that's necessary here, but if you can, if you can, if you can think from the point of view of the river, you're also doing something very important uh, in terms of understanding the people. Because there's a reason why right bank, left bank seemed like a sensible way to describe reality, which is that so much of what we're talking about in terms of economics and power had to do with who was controlling the river, um, who was making use of the river, right? The, the river is so important to Ukraine, the Dnipro is so important to Ukraine, that right bank, left bank seemed like a sensible way to describe the country for hundreds and hundreds of years. And of course, that, it, it's still true. This is where the fighting is going on right now, right? This is the, the, the Ukrainian army is trying to get to the Dnipro River in Kherson Oblast right now. Okay, so all of these terms, I'm afraid we sort of have to keep in mind. Um, so let me begin with, um, with what I promised to do at the beginning of the class, in which I'm not, I'm not going to try to pay off that promise, which is to make sense of the Muslim world and the Turkic world in Ukraine. Because um, as, as Serhi Polki reminds us in the reading, the, 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 the unification of Ukraine is primarily a north to south type enterprise. And we've gotten to where, we've gotten to where the northern boundary is going to be. When we get to 1569 and the Union of Lublin and the Polish crown, taking um, a great deal of what had been Lithuania away from Lithuania and putting it under the Polish crown. Then we're getting to something like the northern boundary of Ukraine. We're getting to a difference between modern Belarus and modern Ukraine. But the south, we still have a lot of work to do in the south. And it's complicated work because it involves seeing the Crimean Hanet, seeing the Ottoman Empire, and then watching how they get pushed out. And they're going to get pushed out, again, jumping ahead a little bit, they're going to get pushed out by Ukraine, Ukrainian Cossacks working for the Russian Imperial Army, right? So the pushing out of the Cossacks, the pushing out of the, of the Tatars, right? The beginning of a process of de-Turkification and de-Islamization of the Crimean Peninsula is going to be work that's done by Cossacks when they are already dominated and ruled by and taking orders from the Russian Empire. Right. So, but, but to make sense of all this now, to do the, to do the south, to bring the south in, I want to start with the Crimean Hanet. Okay. So, the southern border of today's Ukraine, which is the northern coast of the Black Sea, is a very special zone from our point of view because this is the zone where we do have sources. The basically the entire time, like as much as so long as there's been like a classical ancient history, we have sources for this little zone. It's different with Kiev. It's different from the north. There, when we talk about Christianization, we're also talking about the beginning of written sources. Before Christianization, the written sources are very sparse. They're Muslim visitors, they're Jewish visitors, but there, isn't, there aren't that many written sources. On the, on the coast of the Black Sea, this is totally different because the Greeks have been there for 2,500 years and they've left, they've left a written trace. Um, 
The Greeks have been there since 5,000 um, 5, BCE, and, and, they, and they are there the entire time, right? They're still there, um, although not in great numbers. They're there the entire time. Um, we can't go through all of ancient history, but they're there through, um, they're there through Alexander, they're there through Rome, they're there through Byzantium. Um, when, when Constantinople is sacked for the first time in 1204, by Western Crusaders. So one thing one has to remember when you were doing non-West European history is that there were a lot of Crusades and the Crusades went in directions that you might not have expected. So it turns out that on the way, if you're on the way to liberate the Holy Land, it's a nice pit stop to sack Constantinople, which is what happened in 1204, right? Um, that not, isn't necessarily something, or you know, the Crusades that we did earlier with the Crusaders trying, trying to, to, to to, to kill slash convert the pagan Balts, right? Those are Crusades. The history of the Crusades also involves European Europeans um, trying to convert Europeans, or in the case of Constantinople, just stealing a lot of nice things, which you can now visit if you go to Italy, um, or France, because Napoleon then stole some of the good stuff again a second time later on. Okay, so the the, the point is that the the Greeks um, the Greeks are there the whole time. There's a classical world which is durable linguistically um, the entire time on, on, the, on the south coast. Uh, and what's, um, so, so what's, that's, that's one part of Crimea and that's what, makes it, that's what makes it special. And I want you to just mark that. Um, so for the, for the, because it's gonna, it's, gonna, it's, gonna come, it's gonna be important later on. Um, it's gonna be important later on when we talk about how Russia legitimates its claim. So the, the Crimean hinterland though is generally not touched by Greek settlement. Um, the Crimean hinterland is also not touched by Rus. So this is very important. We spend a whole lot of time trying to understand Rus. You understand how Rus is a kind of synthesis of Vikings coming from the north, Byzantium coming from the south, all of this. But um, Rus does not control territorially Crimea. Rus does not control territorially what's now southern Ukraine either. So just note, um, you know, this whole thing about who does Rus belong to in this war has this kind of strange feature that the war is actually taking place with the exception of a little bit around Kharkiv. It's generally taking place where Rus was not, as neither side is very keen to mention. Rus did not get this far south. It certainly did not get to Crimea. So Rus did not get to the Crimean Peninsula, but the Mongols did, okay? so. In our world, in our class, in East European history, the Mongols are basically coming in and they're breaking things up, right? But from the Mongol point of view, that's not what they're doing. They're establishing trade routes, they're establishing states, and the Mongols don't care if you're Rus or you're not Rus. They, they, I mean, their indifference to what other people are is quite extraordinary. Um, what they're doing is establishing big states. The big state in the region was called the Golden Horde, which is a kind of unforgettable name. And then the history of post-Mongol statehood is the Golden Horde breaking up into smaller units. One of those units is Moscow, as we've discussed, right? The Moscow state is a post-Mongol state, a post-Mongol vassal state. Another one of these states is called the Crimean Hanet. So Hanet, K-H-A-N-A-T-E. It's called a Hanet because the ruler is called a Han, K-H-A-N. So, so Muscovy is a post-Mongol state, as we've seen, in the sense that it, th there were princes of Rus there who were able to maintain power by collecting the tribute for their Mongol 
overlords. And then eventually, after a couple of centuries, they break free. And then they break out spectacularly against other European cities, and then south, southward against, against, against Muslims, and then eastward all the way to the Pacific in a kind of spectacular moment of expansion, which is not really our subject, but which is very important for our subject, because it explains how the Russian Empire is going to be able to dominate by, by the 18th century. The, the Crimean Khanate is a successor state in a different way. The Crimean Khanate is ruled by princes who are direct successors, direct descendants of Genghis Khan. Um, the princely class in the, Crimean, in the Crimean Peninsula and the Crimean Khanate are direct successors um, by blood, at least so they claim, of Genghis Khan. Um, and uh, they are ruling the people who were the people who were there before are Turkic speakers, mainly. I don't think I put this on the list. Um, mainly from a group that we call the Kuman, and the people who come into being as the Crimean Tatars, who are still known as the Crimean Tatars, are a synthesis of the local Turkic speakers plus the Mongolian ruling classes who who, who come in who come in later. Okay, so the Crimean Khanate has a has a political system. Um, which is, interestingly, not so different from Poland-Lithuania. <laughs> they have, they, they, they have a, a, an assembly of nobles, which is called the Kuraltai. Um, the assembly of nobles theoretically elects the Han, just like the Polish-Lithuanian parliament theoretically elects the king, although in both cases, strangely, it's the same family that gets elected again and again for a couple of centuries, which is, which is nice if you, can, if you can work it out. Um, we know that the Han, who is the ruler, had a second in command um, who was called the Kalga. We know that state functions were held by nobles from various post-Mongol families. Um, we know that women played a, a public role until about the 1560s, when, when, they, when they disappear, more or less, from the sources. And then we also know, and this is where things get very interesting, that the Crimean, the Crimean Tatars and the Crimean Khanate had a centuries-long encounter with Lithuania, which, if you look at your map, um, can, will, will begin to make sense. If you remember, in the 14th centuries, on one of your, on one of your maps, um, the one from Magoshi, you can see the, the dates he gives for the Lithuanians moving south into what's now Belarus, what's now Ukraine. The Lithuanians move relentlessly south as a result of the pressure of Teutonic Knights, right? Remember, they move relentlessly south they gather in the lands of Rus, to coin a phrase, um, and, uh, and, and they also, so if you gather in the lands of Rus, you are going to push up against the Crimean Tatars. So the Lithuanians and the Crimean Tatars are fighting regular wars against each other um, for decades and decades and decades. And the Lithuanians, as one does, are also constantly trying to take advantage of the various power struggles and succession crises inside the Crimean Khanate, which means that the Lithuanians are actually recruiting dissenters, the people who lose in these power struggles. They're also prisoners of war. They're recruiting Crimean Tatars into their own state. So up until now, we've talked about Lithuania as being, oh, it's not just a little Baltic state. Look, it also controls Belarus. Look, it also controls Ukraine. Look, most of the population is Orthodox. Oh, and hey, the Lithuanian Grand Duke married the Polish king, who was a girl. And so Lithuania becomes a much bigger, bigger, much bigger historical entity than we're used to thinking about. But I'm now going to add one more dimension. The Lithuanians had a very meaningful encounter with the Crimean Tatars, uh, which meant that among other things, inside the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, there were lots of Muslims for centuries, for centuries. There were mosques in Vilnius, 
There were mosques in basically every meaningful town in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. We've come across the city of, of Ostro, um, which, which uh, one of the students kindly asked about, which is the place where the first full Slavonic Bible was printed. When the first full Slavonic Bible was printed, there was a mosque in Ostro. Um, the famous romantic poet, poet uh, Adam Mickiewicz, was born in a town called Novogrudek, or in Belarusian, Novohradek. Um, that town also had a mosque because of the Crimean Tatars, right? Every town that mattered in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania had a mosque because of the Crimean Tatars. So, um, so, the, um, so, so, so the point here is that for centuries, there's an encounter between Lithuania and, and the Tatars because they are at war but, and because they have a common border. And when Lithuania and Poland come together, then Poland-Lithuania, we can think about it like that from 1386 onward, Poland-Lithuania also has durable contact with the Crimean Tatars. And this is a very important part of Polish-Lithuanian identity. If you go to the Royal Museum in Warsaw, which I recommend, and you walk into it, you'll wonder why all of the, the, like you're in the first room and suddenly there are all these scimitars with gems and things like this. And you think, wow, this must be like war booty that the Poles took from their enemies, but it's not. It's the swords they use themselves because they synthesized what they learned from their long encounter with the Crimean Tatars. Okay, so, um, so the Crimean Tatars are uh, an, an important state for several hundred years. The tragedy of the Crimean Khanate is that they fall under Ottoman dependency at about the same time that the Ottoman Empire itself begins to weaken. That's, that's it, in a word. So somewhere around 1650, the Crimean Khanate um, yields to the Ottomans in terms of setting its own policy. There had been a kind of interaction of equals for a couple of hundred years where the Ottomans basically farmed out their northern foreign policy to the Crimean Khanate. And the Crimean Khanate you know, decided what was going to happen with Moscow, with the Poles, with the Lithuanians. Around 1650, it looks like the Ottomans are basically taking control. And the problem with this is that it's around this time that the Ottoman Empire becomes weak. Okay, so let me briefly now try to do the Ottoman Empire. From our point of view, um, what's, what's crucial for the Ottomans is the Ottoman Empire as a European power. Of course, the Ottoman Empire also controls Northern Africa. It also controls Arab lands. It also controls um, the Near East uh, into Persia. But the Ottoman Empire, from our point of view, um, in, this, in this very brief synthesis, has, we have to think of it as a European power which is pulling back from Europe in the 17th century. Okay, that's the crucial thing. The Ottoman Empire is gaining control over the Crimean Khanate, but losing control of everything else. So you can justify thinking of the Ottoman Empire as a European power. The, the Ottomans, so the, the Osman family, that's why they're called the Ottomans, the Osman family, O-S-M-O-N, they gain control of Anatolia, today's Turkey, for the same reason that the Lithuanians gain control of territory north of the Black Sea. The Osman family gains control of territory south of the Black Sea because the Mongols fragment and pull back, right? So whereas the Lithuanians rush in north of the Black Sea, the Ottomans rush in south of the Black Sea, and they, 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 conquer, um, they conquer Anatolia. Um, the next thing they do is they conquer the Balkans. So the Ottomans are a European power basically from the beginning. They conquer other things as well, but they're a European power from the start. From our point of view, and again, there's much else to say, but from our point of view, the crucial struggle, and I'm afraid this is where the geography has to add one more dimension, the crucial struggle is between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs. Um, 
The, the Habsburgs, who we're going to hear a lot about after the exam a week from now, the, the Habsburgs are the, the family that rules from Vienna, which also has a big age of exploration, age of discovery world empire, which we're going to talk about. The Ottomans are a very important land empire, which has been boxed up in the eastern Mediterranean by superior navies and never breaks out into the wider world. Right? So the Ottomans are in this category of powers that don't make it into this, 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 if you want, globalization, this age of discovery. They're very powerful. They control an awful lot of land. But unlike the Russian Empire, unlike, and of course, unlike the Portuguese, the Spanish, and so on, they don't break out of the Mediterranean. They're stuck in the Mediterranean. So from the point of view of Istanbul, the, the, nat the natural vector of expansion is northward. And um, the, the, the story of the 16th and 17th centuries is a couple of attempts to, uh, to, to, to besiege and control the Habsburg capital, which is Vienna. In my other class, I spent a lot of time talking about this. Here we can only do it very briefly. But the crucial point is that um, a couple of times the Ottomans try and fail to take Vienna. They try and fail in, 15, in 1526. In 1526, um, they, they gain control of a lot of territory. Um, they, they, they gain control of the land which is on the west side of the Black Sea, Moldovia, Wallachia, the west side of the Black Sea. They gain control of most of Hungary, but they don't take Vienna. They're going to sit in Hungary for 150 years, but they don't get to Vienna. Um, they, they, they try again in 1683. Um, and this is a crucial turning point for a lot of people. Uh, 1683 is the famous moment when the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth lifts the Ottoman siege of Vienna. This is in, in sort of conventional histories of Europe and how Europe is built. This is a hugely important moment because it's counter-reformation, Catholicism, Vienna and Warsaw together defeating this Islamic army around Vienna. So huge amounts of Baroque painting and symbolism and recollection along, along those lines of this event. Um, from, from our point of view, this has some, this has some different resonances. Uh, so the, the, king, the king of Poland who liberates Vienna, who raises the Ottoman siege of Vienna, who's called Sobieski. Jan Sobieski is the king of Poland. When he, when he liberates, as Ukrainians will tell you, so I'm sure one of you is good, so that you should visit this. If you're in Vienna, which I know you all now will be, um, if you're in Vienna, the, the, the little mountain from which the, the Polish-Lithuanian army comes down is called the Kalenberg. And you can, you can walk up it. It's a nice hike. You can, you can take the bus up and walk down if you're not that energetic. There's ice cream at the top, lovely views, strongly recommend. Uh, oh, and on the way down, there are these places called Horiger, which have fresh wine and like very simple food, and it's lovely. So you should definitely all do this. But as any Ukrainian will tell you, when the Polish-Lithuanian army comes crashing down that mountain, they have 5,000 Ukrainian Cossacks with them. Okay, 5,000 Ukrainian Cossacks. And then this brings us to the more interesting thing. They had, there was a problem. <laughs> there was a problem. There, there were many interesting problems between the Austrian command and the Polish command. Um, and one of the problems was that the Austrians could not tell the difference between the Poles and the Crimean Tatars. Right? They literally could not tell the difference. 
Um, and so because in dress and attire and also in tactics, they were very similar. And there were um, the, the Crimean Tatars, of course. Oh, I didn't say this. But the Crimean Tatars were there in 1683 on the Ottoman side, right, on the Ottoman side. So these Poles, Poles, Lithuanians and Crimean Tatars who've been fighting on their own border for a long time are now fighting in somebody else's border. Like if you imagine Crimean Tatars, 10,000 of them, in, in the round Vienna, um, fighting the Polish army coming down from the mountain, right? And the, the Viennese cannot tell the Poles, cannot tell the Lithuanians from the Crimean Tatars, right? Because of the hairstyles, because of the scimitars, right? Because of the cavalry, they cannot tell the difference. And so the decision that was made was that the Poles are going to put a bit of straw in their helmets. You know, the way modern armies will have a collar on their sleeves or whatever, um, like, the Pol like the Ukrainians and the Russians today, uh, the Poles would put a bit of straw on their helmets so, they, so that the, the Austrians could tell who they, who they were. So it's, a, it's an anecdote, it's funny, but it reveals something which is deeply true, which is that this long, centuries-long encounter between the Lithuanians and the Tatars and then the Poles and Lithuanians and the Tatars mark them, just as it marks the Cossacks. Right? The, the, the Viennese, of, of course, couldn't tell the Cossacks from the Tatars. Right? That goes without saying, because the interaction between the Cossacks and the Tatars has been even more intimate for even longer, because the Cossacks are precisely the people who found that free spot between Polish-Lithuanian power and the, and the Crimean Tatars and lived in that spot, lived in it geographically, lived in it culturally. Okay, so the, the 1683, 1683 victory is most important for us because it leads to 1699. If we're, if we're off in, in Central European history, 1683 is the moment when the Austrians turn the tables on the Ottomans. And not only do they defend themselves in Vienna, but between 1683 and 1699, they fight their way southward through the Balkans. And they establish themselves as a land power in the Balkans, which is the beginning of a story which will eventually lead to the First World War, different class. Um, but for our point of view, um, when, the when, the, when the Ottomans have to sign a peace treaty in 1699, which, by the way, is the first time they have to sign a peace treaty as a defeated power. When they have to sign a peace treaty in 1699, that changes the balance of power in our part of the world, right? The, the, the Ottomans have been defeated. Their armies have been defeated in southern Europe. The treaty which is signed is the Treaty of Karlovitz in 1699. The Treaty of Karlovitz, that's the time when the Ottomans sign a treaty as a defeated power. Hugely important turning point in, in the balance of power. Um, because as I said, uh, the Crimean Tatars are now, they've now they're now basically hitched to the Ottomans. They're hitched to the Ottomans at a moment when the Ottomans then lose this big important war. And the power, and Ottoman power has been driven southward. Okay, that, now that changes everything. That changes everything for the Russians, as, as we're going to see in a moment. Okay, now before I get to the Russians, we've got to briefly talk about, about, the, about, the, uh, about the Cossacks, the Ukrainian Cossack state. So... The, the Ukrainian Cossack state gets blurred out of Polish history, gets blurred out of Russian history. Um, we have 1648, which everyone is keen to treat as a violent, you know, moment of violent rebellion, which of course it was. But that's not the only thing that it was. It was also the construction of a new political order in which, in which the, the governing elite has been driven away or physically eliminated or discredited. Right? So it's also something like a revolution in which a new, a new class emerges to, to control territory, which are the Cossacks and, and the, the, the Cossack officers. Now, 
These Cossacks and Cossack officers, however, are, are not in a position after 1648 to rule territory themselves. They are constantly forced to ally with the Russians, as in 1648, sometimes still with the Poles, sometimes with the Ottomans, which is why this lecture is called the Triangle. There is something like Ukrainian statehood. It's called the Hetmanate, um, after the Hetman. But the Hetmanate is constantly bending and turning and being turned against itself. Right? So you have right bank hetmans, you have left bank hetmans, you have hetmans who are trying to rule both the right wing and the left wing. You have a hetman called Doroshenko, um, who I hope I put on the, the list, tell me if I didn't. But Doroshenko in 1669 becomes a vassal of the Ottomans in order to try to unite the right bank and the left bank, where the, the right bank is controlled by the Russians, the left bank is controlled by the Poles. So if you're a hetman, your great project is, is to bring these things together and then ideally to shove everybody else out, but this is that, that they're not able to do. Um, uh, so, the, um, so, so after, so okay, this is another date and treaty. So I'm gonna tell you right off, you're paying attention, you're right here with me. These dates and these treaties are going to be on the exam, right? They're going to be on the exam. Know the dates of the treaties. So the Treaty of Andrusovo, 1667, that is when the Poles and the Russians, lots of inspired note-taking now, um, that's when the Poles and the Russians divide Ukraine, um, left bank and right bank, 1667 Treaty of Andrusovo, which means that now you, ha you have hetmans, you have, you have leaders of the Cossacks on both sides, right? And of course, if you're on one side, your greatest aspiration is to be also on the other side. And then your next aspiration is, to get, is then to get clear of whoever was sponsoring you, whether that's the Russians or the Poles or the Ottomans. That's the triangle. You wanna bring it all together, and then you wanna drive out whoever sponsored you. They don't manage to do this, but that's, that's the pattern. So 1672, Doroshenko helps the Ottomans to defeat the Poles in Podolia. Okay, Podolia is this region in, in southwestern Ukraine. Um, and then in, after that happens, so the Ottomans then control Podolia, which I'm going to, you guys write down Podolia, please. They can, just like it sounds, uh, it controls, they control Podolia. And then, um, and then at the end of the 1670s, the Ottomans make peace with Poland. In 1681, you're going to see how this all fits together. In 1681, the Ottomans make peace with the Russians. Okay, so now the Ottomans are at peace with the Poles and the Russians at 1681. What do they then do? They make their big move northwards to Vienna and fail, right? So important. They, they, they make their, their move is to go to Vienna and they, and they fail. Okay, and so then everything turns around. After 1683, the Ottomans are driven south. The Crimeans have been defeated. The Crimean Han, by the way, takes personal responsibility for the defeat and, uh, and, and retires. Um, and... In 1699, the Poles take Podolia back. The Poles take Podolia back. Um, and the reason why, there are many reasons why we're concerned about this, but one of the reasons why um, we're so interested in Podolia is because of the way that Brooklyn looks now, looks like now. So the, um, the, 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 have you heard of the Hasidim, right? The, um, so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a version of, ortho, of Jewish orthodoxy um, the, the, it's, uh, it's present on Yale's campus. You don't have to look too hard to find it. Um, uh, so, okay, I gotta stop myself. That was a tangent. I don't have time for, see, in the, in the 18th century, you have no time for tangents. That's what the 18th <laughs> century is like. So, no tangents, but Hasidism, 
which is a version of, of, of Orthodox Judaism, which is still, which is, let's say, thriving. Um, it's one of the reasons why Yiddish still exists as a language, is, is created in Podolia after the Poles come back. And the reason why, I'll tell you what Hasidism is in a moment, very briefly, but the reason why it, it, it arises is that it's in this territory which has shifted from Muslim Ottoman control back and forth to Polish Christian control. And this whole Polish system of coming in with the aristocracy and the serfdom and then going back out with the aristocracy and the serfdom and then coming back in with the aristocracy and the serfdom is very disruptive for the Ukrainians who rebel against it. And in this whole, this whole boiling atmosphere in Podolia is what gives rise to Hasidism, um, where Hasidism is, is, is led by, created by someone who's called the Besht. Besht means the Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good word. Um, very briefly, uh, the idea of, of Hasidism is, um, is, is to give uh, to Judaism a kind of a more earthly and more corporeal component where, where, where joy and direct, direct contact with the mystic are more important. It's, it's also a, a movement which has to do with the printing press and access to the book by people who are not necessarily completely literate, which let's admit like not everybody is completely, you know, there's a funny moment, right? Because the printing press runs ahead of literacy by several hundred years, right? Kind of like the internet now, you know, like it's, it's, the technology is way out ahead of what people, it's a good analogy actually, because what people did with books when they were first published, they did things like, oh, look, I know that letter. Maybe it stands for something. And that's, that's, that's Kabbalah. That's like, that's one way of reading the Bible, right? Is you don't, like you take, you take various combinations of letters and you say, okay, there's a, there's a hidden meaning in this biblical verse, right? That's a way of interpreting the Bible, a much more accessible way, which is associated with, with Hasidism precisely. So it's also, it also has to do with printing press at, at a time of, of, of limited literacy. So um, the, reason, the reason why I mention this is because it's the next step in the history of Jews in Ukraine, Hasidism. And Hasidism is also the version of, a version of Orthodox Judaism, which is going to break out of Podolia and into Ukraine and into Poland and eventually, and eventually into, into North America. Okay, so no time for tangents. There was time for a parenthesis on the Hasids. Now I'm closing that parenthesis and we're getting back to where we need to be, which is Russia. Okay, so now let's think about all this from the point of view of Russia. What the Russians are able to do what, the, what, what, the, what, what the, the new Russian Empire, as it's called from 1721, and a very, and by the way, Russian Empire is a conscious rebranding exercise, right? It's called Russia because of Rus, not the, not the other way around, right? I mean, I realize you're, you're history students, so you know that like chronology is very important. So Russia is called Russia because it's named after Rus. Rus was not called Rus because it was named after Russia. And once you get that straight, a lot of other things fall into, fall into place. Okay, so in the 18th century, Russia makes its, makes its move back into Europe with tremendous success under two great rulers, Peter and Catherine. Um, so how does this happen? The Ottomans are down, right? They're, de they're, they're, they're defeated um, and they're in the south. Between 1683 and 1699, they're being driven southward. Um, and Russia takes advantage of this by going north, going to the Baltic again. We saw how Ivan the Terrible um, foundered on the shores of the Baltic. He starts, this, he starts the Livonian Wars, which he basically loses. The Livonian Wars bring the Poles and the Lithuanians closer together, Union of Lublin, all of that. And then there's terror inside the Muscovite state. This time, 
the move to the Baltic succeeds. The Great Northern War uh, that begins in 1700, which is only one year after 1699, by no coincidence. The Great Northern War, which begins in 1700, it turns out to be a Russian victory. But this Great Northern War turns out to be a Russian victory partly because the Cossacks are fighting there. Um, but they're fighting, the Ukrainian Cossacks, but they're fighting there in conditions which are highly unfavorable, right? So the Cossacks have been fighting for hundreds of years with and against the Poles, with and against the Lithuanians, with and against the Tatars, right? That's with the Tatars too. The, the Khmelnytsky uprising was with the Tatars against the Poles. It's a triangle. You, you, you can ally with, you know, you have to ally with pretty much everybody in different circumstances. So, but anyway, that is their home turf down there, right? With the Tatars, with the Poles, with the Lithuanians. When they are brought up to fight in, in Sweden, um, in Northern Europe, they're, they're facing a modern army with modern weapons. Um, they're taking huge casualties. They're far away from home, and they're taking orders from Russian imperial officers, all of which leads to a great deal of discontent. Meanwhile, while they're up north, Poland threatens to invade Ukraine, um, and the hetman of, of uh, the hetman, who is the hetman of the left bank, the hetman of the Russian part of Ukraine, who is a man called Ivan Mazepa, realizes that we're now in a moment of crisis. And so Mazepa makes a decision, which is, which is quite fateful. Um, Mazepa makes the decision in 1708 to switch over to the Swedish side. Okay, and this is, so there are operas about this. There's lots of Russian literature about this. And the reason, for, and it's like, it's the great betrayal by, it, it, it rings down the century, it literally rings down the centuries because Russian bells were supposed to ring out because of Mazepa's betrayal. Um, the, uh, the, the, Mazepa had been a kind of counselor to Peter. Okay, Mazeppa is older than Peter. Uh, Mazeppa had this fantastic European education. He'd been the counselor to the King of Poland. He'd been educated at the Kiev Academy. Then he was educated by Jesuits in Poland. Then he was the counselor to the King of Poland, right? And he was, so he was, and he, so he, he then became a kind of counselor to Peter in his turn, and Peter trusted him. So in, 17, uh, in 1708, when Mazepa switches, switches sides, which he believes he has no choice but to do to try to preserve his homeland, Peter sees this understandably as a, as a huge betrayal, and it's remembered as a tremendous betrayal, as a moment where the Ukrainians betrayed the Russians. So Mazepa switches sides to the Swedes right before they lose. Right before they lose, in 1709, at the Battle of Poltava, um, Russia defeats the Swedes, reaches the Baltic, and becomes a North European power. That is then gonna be followed 1720, 1721, founding of the Russian Empire, um, uh, the creation of, of Petersburg, new European capital, new European capital, um, window, window on Europe, all of that. Mazepa dies in, in 1709. So this is, this, is, um, this is a turning point for the Cossacks. I mean, Cossack power probably wasn't gonna persist much longer anyway, but it's a turning point. Cossack, Co the, uh, Mazepa dies that same year, 1709. 1719, um, the Cossacks are banned from selling grain. Not a detail. They're banned from selling grain on their own. They can only sell grain through Russian ports. And since we know that part of the deep history of Ukraine is that Ukraine has the most fertile soil in this part of the world, that ban is a big part of their dependency on Russia. 1722, the Russians create something called the Little Russian Collegium, which is going to co-rule or eventually rule the Cossack lands. Little Russia, Malarasiya, is, is then a Russian term for, which I'll talk more about later, for referring to, for referring to Ukraine. 
So after these turning points, right, after 1699, Battle of Karlovitz, sorry, the Treaty of Karlovitz, and after 1709, the Battle of Poltava, the, the, the Ottomans are down and the Swedes are down and the Russians have basically a free hand with the Cossacks and they're using the Cossacks to fight the Swedes and then they're using the Cossacks to fight the Crimean Hanat and to fight the Ottomans. That's the way it goes. So, the, so, the, so you can see the Cossack, Cossack power is being spent northward and being spent southward. Um, in the 18th century, in a series of battles, the, the Russians managed to drive Crimean power out of what is now southern Ukraine. And, and then eventually they managed to conquer Crimea itself. This happens in a couple of wars, 1735 to 1739, then 1768 to 1760, sorry, 1768 to 1774. Um, Crimea becomes a protectorate that year, 1774, 1783, it's annexed by the Russian Empire. Now, while this is happening, while the, while the Cossacks are being played out, right? Cossack power is being spent in these wars southward. It's not that it's new that the Cossacks are fighting the Crimean Tatars. They've been doing that forever. What's new is that they're doing it under Russian command. And when that job is done, all that remains of their autonomy is taken away, right? So you're seeing this triangle kind of crushes in on, on everyone at the, same, at the same time. The Crimean Hanat is being defeated by Ottomans but in that defeat, the, 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 sorry, it's being defeated by Cossacks. And, but in that defeat, the Cossacks are also being defeated by Russia, right? The institutions of, of, the, of, the, of, of the Cossacks are going to disappear at basically the same time that the institutions of the Crimean Hanat are going, to be dis, are going to disappear. And then they are swept up. And here's where things get intellectually very interesting. They are then swept up by Catherine's idea of a new Russia, okay? So this is fascinating because what Catherine does, educated woman, German, by the way, um, uh, her, her real name is Sophie. Um, what Cath and she, there's nothing Russian about her except the husband who had to be murdered so she could rule. That's it. Um, so so, so Catherine has this idea, which is very elegant. It's also a classic, classically colonial idea that these lands that have just been conquered, there wasn't anybody there, right? These are, these are virgin territories. Um, the, so, so, so the place is renamed what's now Southern Ukraine, where the Cossacks had had power, and, and the Crimean Peninsula, where the Crimean Hanat had had power. These places are renamed New Russia, okay? Now that word new is magical, right? Like with New England or New South Wales or New Caledonia. That word new is magical because it suggests this is, this, is, this is our new Russia. It's powerful, right? It's powerful. More than 200, you know, 200 years later, um, uh, 300 years later, um, people are gonna be still drawn by this notion of new Russia. But when you say something is new, you're not saying it's yours. You're saying that it's, we want it to be ours, right? That's the whole point. When you, so, so Novorossiya does not mean something which is Russian. It means something that we're going to make Russian. We're going to pretend that nothing else is there. And how do you do that? Well, you send multiple, and the, the Russians did this. They sent four, four expeditions of the Russian Imperial Academy of Sciences to Crimea to name everything, find all the species, map everything, right? Because science is one of the tools by which you gather imperial knowledge. And then the naming 
and I mean, this is, you have, one has to admit, this is quite brilliant on Catherine's part. They rename everything. So the, all, the, the Turkic names, the Muslim names, the Crimean Tatar names are all are replaced. And what are they, and, and what are they replaced with? Greek names or names that sound Greek, like Herson, okay? Like Herson, that city that's being fought over right now. Herson, completely invented name, right? Or it comes from, it comes from the Greek city of Herson, which is on, on Crimea. Um, Mariupol, sounds Greek, sort of, right? That's the whole idea. They, they took the old names and then they replaced them with Greek names. And when they founded new places, those two examples I gave are new places, Herson and Mariupol. They gave them Greek or Greekish, Greek sounding, Greco, whatever names. And the point of this is to say, Russia is connected with the classical world, right? And in that, we're European, right? We're, we, we're in the enlightenment. Um, connecting Russia with the classical world, going back all the way 2000 years, means that you obliviate everything that happens in between. So the Crimeans don't matter, the Ukrainians don't matter. It's just, it's Russia here alone with its historical destiny, which goes all the way back to Greece. And so it's, so, so it's new Russia, but it's justified by this connection to the classical world. Okay, that brings us to where we need to be. The Crimean Tatars themselves are going to be physically displaced about a third of them, roughly 300,000 of them, are going to immigrate while Russia takes control of the peninsula, most of the Ottoman Empire. During the, during the Crimean War of the 1850s, another 140,000 Crimean Tatars are going to leave. Jumping ahead a bit, the remainder of the Crimean Tatar population is going to be deported every man, woman, and child in, in 1944 under Soviet rule, so that the entire peninsula is uh, deprived of its, of its indigenous population. Um, the, the Ukrainians, and this is the very last thing, when this is all over, when, when the Cossacks have been disbanded, when the territories have been integrated into new Russian districts, as soon as that happens, in the spirit of romanticism, the, 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 the Ukrainians from a new university in today's Kharkiv, what was called Kharkov in Russian back then, from a new university which is founded in 1805, the first move is going to be classical, traditional, European-style romanticism, where they start looking back to the Cossack past and start writing about Cossack state continuities. Um, and they will move, in the 19th century, they will move into a mode where they turn their own past into something like a usable national story, which we're going to talk more about um, in, in, the, in, the weeks, in the weeks to come. Um, for the Crimean Tatars, for various reasons, this wasn't possible. Um, the Crimean Tatars aren't going to be able to make a move like this. They're going to be largely dispersed and they're going to be treated as alien and their domination is going to be much more complete. I'm going to talk more about that when we get to the 20th century because it's, it's really interesting in itself and it's very important for the way that the war is being fought. Just one closing thought. People find it easier to think that Crimea is really Russia than Ukraine is really Russia, right, today. And why is that? I mean, it's because, the, it's because the history of Crimea has been, although the history of Ukraine has been pretty successfully obliterated, the history of Crimea has been very successfully obliterated. And so the idea that Ukraine is always Russia, maybe like, you know, you might ask a question, but Crimea is always Russia. People are more likely to believe that, right? And so part of the work that we have to do in history is just to, is to fill in the gaps and you know, get, get, get things where they were in the past and, and make these always claims, whatever they might be, 
um, seem unbelievable. And uh, in that way, prepare ourselves for the exam. Good luck. 1699. 1699 is definitely <laughs> going to be on this exam. Um, 100%. 1699. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. The 18th century is tough work, and I appreciate that you're here with me. These recordings were made and edited by Guy Ortoliva at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.